Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something special about that name. Amen? I thank you for being in the Lord's house, gathering with the people of God so that we could together make much of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the one who has rescued our souls, the one whom we owe our worship and praise this morning. I want to invite you, take your Bible, let's go back together to Philippians in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. As you're going there, let me just uh, give an invitation to you. Dawn and I will be meeting with anyone interested today who would like to consider a trip to Israel with pastor and church family. There's an interest meeting immediately following the second hour in the East Venue. We'll meet you there. Interest meeting means there's no commitment, but if you have an interest, want to know more about it, want to get your name on a communication list about an upcoming trip, then we'd like to hear from you and know that you are interested. So right after the second hour, we'll be meeting in there. It'll be a brief meeting, no lunch served, so it will be brief. And uh, But we want to communicate some upfront things, and we'll follow up with more meetings later. Philippians chapter 2. Last week, we heard Paul's appeal to believers in Philippi, but to you and I, for internal unity through the attitude of humility that is exemplified most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. The command was clear in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That mind, that attitude is that of humility, as Jesus illustrated best how to be submissive, how to humble himself to the Father's will, how to be obedient. Paul told us about Jesus' humiliation as he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the appearance as men, becoming obedient to death, even death of the cross, the most humiliating, excruciating death. But after his humiliation, Christ was exalted by his Father, that God gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue confess. Together, let's do this, church, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so His name is above every name. His name is exalted high. Now, in our passage today, Following that, there's a therefore or so that, there's a connecting word in verse 12. And so verse 12 in that first word connects what just has been said and illustrated the humility of Christ and the command for us to take on that mind of humility for the sake of unity internally in the body of Christ. Therefore, based upon that, how do we live our life obediently to become shining lights in the midst of the world in which we live. And so we're called to that same humility of Christ. We're called to that same attitude of submission to the Father's will. We're called to that same walk of obedience that we see demonstrated in Jesus. And when we follow, imitate, take on that attitude, then we will shine 
brightly in the world that we live for His glory. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, if you have your place in Scripture, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, for the reading of God's Word. As you stand in, I want to welcome those who are online. Thank you for joining us for worship on this glorious day. Welcome to our East Venue family. I walked around a little bit, saw some of you. We're glad that you're here today. And to our worship center folks, it's good to see your face today. Thank you for choosing to be in the Lord's house. God's going to honor that, and He's going to honor it through His Spirit working in you, renewing your mind by the truth of His Word. Let's listen. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, Direct our thoughts, our desires, our steps, that we may live worthy of the gospel of Christ, that we may do nothing out of selfish ambition or vainglory, but like Christ, we'll esteem others and we'll embrace that attitude of humility for the sake of unity in the gospel mission. So, Holy Spirit of God, impress upon us what we need to hear today and make us more like Jesus in these moments. It is in His mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, we jump into Philippians 2, beginning with verse 12. We hear the Apostle Paul speaking as a pastor shepherd to his people. It is a pastoral appeal as he is coming in this passage, and he begins, therefore, connecting word, my beloved or my brethren. It is important to remember that Paul is speaking to believers. Chapter 1, to the saints in Philippi. Here, he calls them my brothers or my beloved. It's a family term. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. That's important as we hear a command that is here that we are not talking about working for our salvation here. Paul is speaking to those who are already saved, born again. So as we unpack the passage, we understand that Paul is not telling them how to be saved, but now that they are saved, he's telling them how to live out their faith. Paul loves these believers. As a pastor, he desires only their greatest good. Therefore, he is bold in speaking truth to them, even if it hurts. And in verse 12, Paul does a, a great model for us to follow as leaders. He commends them before he commands them. 
He commends their obedience, that when I was with you, you were obedient, and even in my absence, even more, I commend your obedience. And then he is appealing to them and, and, and talking to them as his dear children, as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and then he makes an appeal for them to keep taking next steps in their faith so that their life could be a light for the glory of God in the midst of the dark world that they live in. This is part of living life together in the body of Christ. We need each other. We need each other to commend one another and say, well done when we're doing well. We need one another to hold us accountable when we're not doing so well or we fall short or we're growing faint or we're growing weary to remind us, look, Jesus is worth it. Don't stop. Don't give in. Persevere. Endure. None of us are fully what we ought to be today. And the good news, none of us are fully what we're going to be one day. But I pray that all of us are not what we used to be. That is true if we're in Christ. Let us now press on to learn what Paul means to obey more and more with great joy. And to this point, we've heard the apostle in verse 21, chapter 1. He said, for me, my life is all about Christ. To live as Christ, die as gain. He's called these believers in verse 27 of chapter 1, then you walk, live, conduct your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you profess to be a child of God, then live as if you are different as a child of God. Live worthy of the gospel that has changed you. But there still may be some questions that remain. There are for us, and I'm sure these believers had them. How do we live that out? Live worthy of the gospel. How do we do that? Well, Paul began to break that down in chapter 2, calling for that internal unity. Don't do anything vain conceit or for self-ambition. Do all things esteeming others. Take on this mind of Christ. But after we're saved, then how do we keep taking next steps or how do we grow in obedience or maybe specifically here, how do we grow to be more like Jesus? And so Paul answers that question. There are three insights. Before we unpack those in verses 12 through 18, I want to ask some questions, and we'll come back to these at the end. How do we grow as Christians? So I want to ask, how are the disciplines of what we call a quiet time? How's your prayer life? How's your Bible meditation and study and memorization going? How's your serve in the body of Christ going? How's your generosity going? You're giving unto the Lord all that you are and all that you have and expressing that through time, talent, and treasure. How is your walk in spiritual disciplines going? How you doing? How's your relationship with other believers? Because the enemy's favorite tactic is to distract us and get us to be mad at each other and unforgiving toward one another and enemies of one another, and then we're not about the gospel. We're about selfish wants and wishes and needs sometimes. And what areas may we be vulnerable today, susceptible to complaining? Now, we're all made of flesh, and our flesh by default loves to complain. So what have we been complaining about even on the way to church today? 
Three appeals Paul makes to these believers in Philippi as he commissions us to shine his lights. Number one, on your notes, work out your own salvation. Verses 12 and 13 provide a wonderful starting point for what we understand in our walk with Jesus in theology terms called sanctification. That once we are saved, that we're born again, that's the starting point of our journey with Jesus. Once we're saved, then we begin to grow day by day to be more like Christ in character and conduct. That's called sanctification. It is a lifelong obedience of believers which leads to Christ-likeness. So this passage, again, is not about a works-based righteousness. Paul does not say, work for your salvation. We can't earn our salvation. In my Bible, just one page over is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul says, work out your salvation. That's a huge difference. God has already worked the work of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And then by grace, through faith in Jesus, we're able to respond to that work of salvation as we hear the gospel, as we're convicted by the Holy Spirit of God of our own sin and need of a Savior, and as we respond through repentance, turning from our sin, and putting trust in Jesus, that's how we are born again, by the power of the gospel and the finished work of Christ. We don't save ourselves, can't do it. So sanctification... The lifelong journey of the believer here on earth is living in light of the gracious gift of salvation in our new position in Christ, in our new identity in Christ. Now that we're in Christ, how do we live that out? How does that manifest itself? The commands in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Regardless of how most Baptists live, We're not saved just to sit and soak until Jesus comes or I go see him. Rather, we are called to grow up in Christ in that new identity, grow up in Christ's likeness in that character to resemble Christ here on earth. And we're called that as we live out our life, as we go, we're living for a higher purpose. We're living for a different kingdom. We're living by different standards. And that's the standard of Christ. We're called to be on mission with Jesus and making disciples. Our life is no longer ours to live for our selfish selves. We're called to grow. We're called to invest. Paul doesn't say that because Uh, that Philippians are are saved so that now that you can just sit and enjoy life until you see Jesus in heaven. It's not a passive life, this Christian life. It is an active life of obedience. Paul urges them, I like what Eugene Peterson said, how he explained it. He said, it is a long obedience in the same direction. So what does our life as a child of God on earth look like from the point of salvation until our earth, our physical death and being in the presence of Jesus or until his coming again? It is a long day by day, play by play direction of obedience to grow up, to be more like Christ and to live our life in obedience to his mission. The verb work out carries meaning to work to full completion. 
Work out your own salvation. It's like in mathematics, work, work, the, work the formula all the way to the end and get the answer. In Paul's day, it was also used in, in working in agriculture, if you will, working the field, cultivating the crop so that at the end you could get the greatest harvest possible. And so Paul is saying, work it out, work out your salvation. So the purpose, the end result, God's purpose for you and me is that we grow up to be like Jesus in character and conduct, right? And so in Romans 8, 29, it's, it's stated this way by Paul, to be conformed into the image of God's Son. That's God's purpose for us. That's the purpose of, sal- uh, of sanctification. By the way, we do not get there by accident. We do not drift toward Christ-likeness. That's why Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 that you must discipline yourself toward godliness. We have responsibility. We have skin in the game. We have work to do, not for our salvation, but because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, because the Spirit of God abides within us, we are now the people of God called to live our life for His glory. So work out your own salvation and fear and trembling. It's present tense in the verb, which means today, tomorrow, and the next day, as long as you have life on earth, as long as you have breath, keep working that lifelong ongoing process of growing to be like Jesus. Just like the gardener keeps cultivating the seed that was planted until the harvest comes, you keep cultivating that gospel seed that has been planted in your life, that God started that good work, verse 6 in chapter 1, He is continuing that good work and He will complete it. There will be a day that you and I are face to face with our Savior and we will be as He is. That's a good day. We're not there yet. There's work to be done. So in the meantime, we keep growing, we keep exercising, we keep cultivating through spiritual discipline so that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is real in our life. Verse 2, do not stop being conformed to the standards of this world. You're not lost anymore. You're different. Therefore, be renewed in your mind. How is our mind renewed? through the intake of the Word of God so that our thinking lines up with truth. And when our thinking lines up with truth, I want to, our desires line up with truth. And guess what? What we desire, we do. What you do is because that's what you desire. So in the vocabulary of our walk with Jesus, when we're struggling with quiet time disciplines and we're struggling with obedience, I can't is not an acceptable excuse before a holy God who placed His Spirit within us to enable us. Maybe we just need to get real and say, I don't desire enough. There's some other things I desire more. I like me. I like my time. I like what I want to do. And so let's just own it. If we're struggling, that struggle is real. Every one of us struggles. There's an enemy against us that's going to make us struggle. There's a world that is lost around us that creates struggle. And there is a flesh within us that sure likes me and selfish attitude and selfish ambitions that's going to cause us to struggle. It's a battle. But it's not one that we are defeated in. It's one that we're promised victory through. The command is for believers to make a continuing, sustained effort to work out to the ultimate completion of our salvation. 
Work your own salvation. Work out, and that, that pronoun, your, are plural. There's an insight here don't want us to miss. Yes, vertically, work out your own salvation. You and the Lord, spiritual disciplines grow, grow up in Christ's likeness. Yes, but it's also community and corporate, which means that part of our working out our salvation is spurred on by what we do together spiritually. That's why life groups are so important. That's why in life groups, we need to deal with the Word of God, ask the questions that meddle in our life, hold one another accountable for the sake of growing up to be like Christ. Life groups are about digging deeper and holding accountable and commending when we get it right, praying over and with when we're struggling and fanning that flame for obedience. We need that. So together we work out our salvation. But here's also what it means. Your salvation is worked out about how we treat one another as well. The world is watching how we treat each other, hearing what we say about each other, and the world takes it all in. So it is a corporate working out as well as individual. What does it mean to work it out with fear and trembling? simply that we are to live in the awe of an almighty God. We are to live growing in our understanding about who the God of Scripture is more and more. Who is our Father? He is almighty God. He is creator God. He's sustainer God. He is holy and righteous God. He's a God who is a jealous God and will not share his glory with any other. He is a God who is to be feared. In fact, Proverbs reminds us it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And so without the fear of the Lord, we don't grow up in righteousness. But in that fear of the Lord and all of who he is, we can't ever get over why a holy God would love a guilty sinner like me and rescue me through the blood of his own son by grace through faith in Christ, not of any works that I've done. And so sometimes we just need a good dose of remembering what it means to be saved and what God has rescued us from. Because when we realize what God has already done in Christ for us, we're better than we deserve every single day, and we have no reason to complain about what God does or does not do. Now, we like to complain. I do too. I, I'm, I, I'm good at it. Don't ask my wife. Paul also doesn't say, based on verse 13, that once we become Christians... God does not save us and step back. It's just like as creator God, he did not create and disappear. He sustains, he rules, he's working it toward an end. In your salvation, he stepped into your life. He claimed you as his very own. He is still at work. Verse 6, chapter 1, in your life, bringing to fruition your salvation. He has not abandoned us. Look at verse 13. If you want to commit a verse to memory, this is one to do. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So following that heavyweight command, Paul gives encouragement. Hey, just remember, it's God at work in you, both to will it and to do it for his good pleasure. The command, work out your own salvation, is grounded in the reality of God working in you. 
There are two specific activities that Paul addresses in the lives of believers in verse 13. One's internal, one's external. God works in you both to will. That's internal. It refers to thoughtful, purposeful choice, not to mere whim or emotional desire. So we are commanded to work out our own salvation as God continues that good work in us. Who gives me my desires? Who grows the desire to love him more? Who grows the desire to obey him more? Who grows the desire to love others more? Well, I can tell you, the source is not my sinful flesh. The source is the God who is at work within me. And so it is God working in us to even increase our want to, our desire, our will to be pleasing to him. But that's a process. But know that we're not hung out there to dry by God to say, hey, you got to desire everything for my good pleasure and good luck figuring that out. Now, he's right there with us through his word, by his spirit. He is instructing us to know him, to love him, and to desire the things that bring him honor and glory. The more we love him, the more we want to bring him honor and glory. The way we bring him honor and glory is through a life of obedience. So God works within us to will. You struggling with a quiet time? You struggling with loving others? Welcome to the club. We all do. But maybe here's a prayer that you might need to think about praying. God, increase my desire for you. Increase my hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, grow the godly desire within me and help me to put Tim's desire behind me. God, grow me up to be more like Jesus in what I desire. But then, secondly, to do. That's outward. Energio, that's the Greek word for energy that we get in the English. In other words, God energizes his children to obey and serve him. God empowers our own sanctification. It's present tense. God is continually at work in the life of the believer, empowering you day by day. On the days you struggle, where's God? He's still there. The days you get it right, where's God? He's right there with you. He is at work, not just to create the will, but also the desire, the ability to do, to accomplish. Now, Paul has just stepped in some deep weeds of theological tension. And that's okay because both truths are very, very real. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Those two truths are real in our salvation and they're real in our sanctification. And just because it is God at work in us to will and to do does not mean we are able to sit passively because God's going to get it done anyway. He has called us to be obedient in daily choices and grow up to be like Christ by putting off the old and putting on the new. So Paul does not try to harmonize these two tensions. He just identifies them. And we will do very, very well not to try to figure out the unfathomable mind of a sovereign God. You're not going to figure out where his sovereignty ends and where our responsibility begins. Just not. 
Just know they're both truths in Scripture, and we're called to recognize the sovereignty of God. And because God is at work, then we can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And once we are, He continues a good work of salvation and enables us to desire and do all that brings Him honor and glory. He just calls us to be obedient and let the Holy Spirit of God work. All right, you ready to fasten the seatbelt? Paul goes, number two on your notes, verses 14 through 16, from preaching to meddling. He's going to get in your business and in mine. Do all things without what? Complaining or disputing. Well, hallelujah. Paul, you could have left those verses out. What does it look like to work out our salvation without fear and trembling practically? It certainly means taking on the mind of Christ, but Paul moves on and he says, your attitude toward God and toward one another needs to be different than the world. He said, do everything without complaint. What's in view here? Everything. Life in every arena. Live all of life doing everything you're called to do without grumbling and disputing at home, at school, at church, at play, in our marriage, in our parenting roles, in our friendships, and in our ministry. Do all that we're called to do without murmuring, grumbling, complaining, or disputing. Why in the world will Paul mention this temptation to grumble? Because the nature of sinful people is to grumble. We're, that's, that's what we're prone to. The nature of the lost world around us is critical, full of complaining and full of disputing. And so get the contrast where Paul is taking us that you're to live different in the world because of Christ in you. And the way that you're going to look different is that you're not going to live your life the same as a lost world through complaining and disputing. If you look just like the lost world, then you have no influence, and you certainly will not be different as a bright, shining star on the backdrop of a dark canvas. Paul also understood that growing up to be like Christ is really difficult. It takes endurance. Pursuing holiness, the pursuit of forgiveness, receiving God's forgiveness, but then offering forgiveness to others, practicing hospitality, loving one's spouse and kids appropriately, sharing the gospel, selfless serving in and through the body of Christ, mobilizing the gifts that God has given you for His glory, generosity, generous giving of your tithe and offerings to the Lord, time, talent, and, and, and treasure and other responsibilities of Christian discipleship, all of these heavy responsibilities in our walk with Jesus will tempt us to complain and dispute. Complaining is a temptation for everyone in the local church. And the number one reason, I think, is because people will never live up to your or my expectations. Let that wrap around your mind a little bit. Your pastors are going to let you down eventually. The deacons who serve you are going to let you down eventually. 
Your life group leader that you love so much and think so highly of is going to let you down eventually. Your brother, your sister in Christ is going to let you down eventually. Your friend is going to let you down eventually. Whether intentional or unintentional, we're going to be hurtful toward others and let others down. And when we are let down, when others don't meet our expectation, we're going to be tempted to complain. And it might be vertical complaining to God, but eventually it's going to be complaining outwardly to others. And that also includes what we post on social media. The word complaining means murmuring or muttering, maybe even a secret displeasure muttered under our breath. Not really for everybody to hear, but we're just walking off not happy. It's a negative response to something that's unpleasant or inconvenient or disappointing or hurtful. It's arising from, hear this, a self-centered notion that that was undeserved. Self-centered notion that that was undeserved. I didn't deserve that. Maybe that was true. But let me just caution you to balance that with this truth. In Christ, you have far more than you ever deserve. Somebody hurt you, how do you respond? Paul's cautioning, distraction from the gospel and the gospel mission. Paul's cautioning from conflict internally among believers. That does happen. That Jesus is worth extending forgiveness and love unconditionally, maybe even undeserved for the sake of the unity of the gospel. Disputing. Disputing is more intellectual, inner reasoning, idea of questioning, doubting, or disputing the truth of a matter where grumbling is emotional, disputing is intellectual. And so it could go vertical. We could be complaining to God. God, I'm, just, I'm doing the best I can. God, why is all this happening to me after I've committed my life to you? God, I'm trying. I don't know what else to do, and it just seems like life is dumping on me one time. We're questioning the goodness and care of our God when we do that. We are. Now, I'm all for honest prayer, and our God is big enough for us to have those conversations and maybe uh, those types of a lament that are a little bit selfish. I'm not saying don't do that, but don't live there. Don't stay there. But that complaining also goes horizontally to others, and it does include today in our world that we live, what you post on social media about others, particularly others in the body of Christ, God takes serious. And the disputing is more questioning, not asking questions, not having a different opinion, but questioning. When we question God, we question His goodness. We question His faithfulness. We question His ability. When we question others, we question their motives. We question their love for us. We question why they are doing what they do. Paul's not the only one that cautioned against complaining. James chapter 5 and verse 9, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. God's going to take care of any injustice that is done. Peter admonishes, be hospitable to one another without complaint. 
Rather, as each one has received a special gift, implore it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold of God's grace. Rather than complaining about everybody that's not pulling their load in the church, you just do what you're supposed to do. Set a good example. And there are a lot of people that are not being obedient in the life of the body of Christ. That's not a liberty thing. That's a body of Christ thing. That's a growth thing. That's a thing that our desire and our doing needs to grow to be more like Christ. The gospel tells us that we are far better off than we deserve. Don't lose sight of that. Considering what we deserve as sinners, death and hell, we should be kept from complaining by remembering God's goodness and God's grace and the gospel good news for us. When we lose sight of the gospel, we'll go down the deep, dark hole of complaining and disputing every time. The purpose that Paul called them to not complain or not grumble is a purpose statement in verse 15. In the New King James, it starts like this, that you may be so that you may become blameless, harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He's not saying so that you become sinless, no, but he is saying that you should be above any legitimate blame, criticism, or condemnation because of sinful behavior, i.e. complaining and disputing. Paul knew, and he reminds these believers, and he reminds us that grumbling and arguing damage our witness. If you want to shine like stars in the world, you must resist the temptation to grumble like lost people. When our conversations with other believers or even among outsiders are filled with negative murmuring and disputing, we lose our witness, our distinctiveness. Jesus in Matthew 5 said we would lose our saltiness. Grumbling causes us to lose our distinctive character in the world around us. The character of the children of God should be above legitimate blame, criticism, and condemnation for such behavior. Holding firmly to the word of life, the message of life, verse 16, first part. In contrast to complaining, what should we do? We should hold firm to God's word, specifically the truth of the gospel. Hold firm. Rather than complain, rather than dispute, hold firm to the word of life. Hold firm to the gospel truth. Don't turn loose of God's word in a dark culture. They need to hear the truth. Don't stop proclaiming it in a perverse culture. It needs to be set free. Let the word of God dwell in you and me richly so that it will permeate our hearts and spill out in our words and actions toward others. Paul wants the church to be a proclaiming church, not a complaining church. Number three on your notes, he closes it out. He said, rejoice that we are poured out for God's glory. There's some images that Paul has used running and working, and now uh, he changes that image of endurance to one of sacrifice, pouring out his own life. We say it this way, gladly spending our lives to see the gospel transform the next generation. Paul told the believers in Corinth, I will gladly spend and be spent for your very souls. That's what he's talking about. Here's what Paul is saying to these believers. He said, I, I, I hope 
on the day of Christ, when we see Jesus face to face and we're standing before him in all of his glory, that as your pastor, as your leader, I can take pride, not sinful pride, but I can take pride that you heard the truth, you responded to the truth, you lived out the truth, and Jesus got the glory. I hope that my life being poured out for you will not be in vain. I can tell you what, that's every pastor's prayer at the end of our days. I've been with you 25 years, and oh, dear God, if we don't grow to be more like Christ in that tenure, I have failed you. But it won't be because I'm not going to stick to preaching the Word of God. I hope when we stand before Jesus one day face to face that there's a whole lot of well done, thy good and faithful servants going on. So Paul calls us in Christ to be different. Live your life differently, particularly without complaining and disputing, so that you stand apart, stand out in the world in which you live as shining lights. Question, how bright is your light for Jesus? By the words that you say, how bright is that light? By the way that we treat others, how bright is that light? By your spiritual disciplines in your walk with Jesus, how bright is that light? By the way, if that light's not bright, it's not going to be bright anywhere else. Vertical first, then horizontal. How bright is your light of investing who you are for God's glory? Time, talent, serve, treasure, finance. How bright is that light? What areas, when you walked in this morning, were you vulnerable in of complaining? Either to God or to others or to both. Now, what are you willing to do about it? My encouragement is to identify those vulnerable areas, confess them back to God, and ask Him to grow your desire to love Him more and hunger for him more, and to empower you continually to live your life differently for his glory. If you're not in Christ today, maybe online, East Venue, or even right here, you have only one resource to try to be good enough, and that's you. And you'll never be good enough for a holy God. You can never tip the scales with good works in your favor recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior is step number one. Recognizing that God loved you so much that He gave His Son, who gave His life and shed His blood, was buried and rose again to give you life. And it's His sacrifice that atones for your sin. And being willing to confess, agree with God that you're a sinner, desire to turn from your self-effort and put all your trust in Christ to redeem you, that's the pathway you need to take. The only way that we're going to shine as lights in a dark world is that Jesus is on the throne and we are living surrendered to him, esteeming others over ourselves, walking in obedience in that spirit, that attitude of humility. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need you to speak truth into our heart and mind right now as children of God. Father, forgive us of grumbling and our own self-pity and 
Father, forgive us of questioning your care and your goodness when life is hard. All of us have been there. All of us get there. But, Father, help us not to stay there. So if there's dear children of God this morning that are in those places, that life has just been really hard, and we've really gotten covered up with the hardships, and our eyes have gone inward, and it's all about us, and we're wallowing in our own pity party. Holy Spirit of God, lift our eyes up to see the truth of the gospel in Christ, and to see that as children of God, our Father has already done for us far more than we ever deserve in Christ. And help us to live in that truth. And because of your goodness and because of this great salvation, may that compel us to not live for our own selfish ambition, but to live for the mission of the gospel that rescued us and others need to hear so it could rescue them. So, Holy Spirit, the areas that we need to deal with, if our quiet time's not where it needs to be, may we pray and confess and ask you to grow our desire because what we desire, we will do. Father, if our words and actions about you or about brothers and sisters in Christ are not appropriate, help us to confess and turn and walk in obedience. If our hearts have never been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, dear Holy Spirit of God, draw to salvation. Bring repentance. Bring faith in Christ. Bring change of heart. Father, it's all for you. Let your people be brighter as we exit than we were when we entered so that Christ will be known. Hear our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.